Welcome to Resounding Verse, a podcast about poetry and song. This is the first episode of season two of my podcast, and it's been many months since I did an episode, almost nine or ten months. In that time, I was working on some other projects, one of which is a website called Art Song Augmented, which is devoted to songs by underrepresented composers and features information about those composers, as well as access to scores and high-quality video recordings. And I mention it because as I relaunch the podcast, I'm going to be using some of the recordings from that website, including the one today. So if you like what you hear on this episode, you can find more songs by equally gifted song composers at artsongaugmented.org. Afterglow by Thomas Walsh Over the orchard, one great star, the mellow moon and the harvest done, and the cheek of the river crimsoned far from the kiss of the vanished sun. Thomas Walsh lived from 1875 to 1928. He was a poet, a literary critic, and also a scholar of Latin American and Spanish literature, who's not particularly well-known today, but he published four books of poetry between 1909 and 1920. And this particular poem was published in a 1909 book called The Prison Ship and other poems. It first appeared in Harper's Magazine in 1906, which is where Mary Turner Salter would have encountered it because her song was published in 1908. Walsh's poem has only four lines, and on a first read, it seems remarkably simple, almost simplistic. It has a very clear rhyme scheme, for example, A, B, A, B. The meter of the poem is very straightforward with four stresses in the first three lines and three stresses in the last line. The setting is rather simple and straightforward, a pastoral scene that shows no outward signs of disturbance. But when you savor its details and really attend to the craft of this poem, you come to discover that this outward simplicity conceals an inner subtlety. The poem, for example, conveys so much in a small space. Awe, fatigue, nostalgia, the inexorable passage of time, even the idea that nature is a kind of sentient being that we can interact with. There's that word kiss, for example, in the final line, the kiss of the vanished sun. The sun is kissing the cheek of the river, just as a parent might kiss the cheek of a child who's falling asleep at the end of the day. And you can feel the speaker longing to remain within the comforting embrace of the natural world at this moment where day is turning to night and the sun is slowly sinking beneath the horizon. The poem takes place not just at the end of the day, but also toward the end of the year. It's, it's harvest time, and harvest time is really right around this time of the year. So the poem exists in a, a kind of halfway zone between day and night and between fall and winter. And what's amazing about it is that the poet allows us to linger in that liminal space, and we experience that feeling of lingering, not just because of the, the words and what they mean, but because of the way the poem is structured. The first two lines are loaded with punctuation. The first line ends with a semicolon. 
the second line has a dash and a semicolon after the word moon, the mellow moon, dash, semicolon, and the harvest done. And then that second line also ends with a semicolon. So three rather strong punctuation marks within two lines of the poem. The sounds of the opening two lines are also the kinds of sounds that you want to linger on, like the O's of over the orchard, or the repeated M's in the mellow moon. Then there's the fact that there's no real verb in the entire poem. It's not an action poem, but a poem of images that float and hover. The one great star, the mellow moon, the harvest done, the cheek of the river that's crimsoned far from the kiss of the vanished sun. We wait for some kind of action to happen, but it doesn't happen. And this is exactly what the poet is, is experiencing in this scene. A desire for inaction, for time to stop, and for this beautiful, blissful moment to sustain itself. But of course, it can't be sustained. The sun has to set, the day has to end, the night has to come, and you feel this sense of time passing, the inexorable movement of time in the last two lines of the poem, which, unlike the first two, move more freely. Recall that I said the first two lines have all of these semicolons in them. Well, the last two lines have not a single punctuation mark in them at all, except for the period at the end of the poem. And the cheek of the river crimsoned far from the kiss of the vanished sun. There's no punctuation between far and from. Far comes at the end of line three and from at the beginning of line four. So this is what, in poetic terms, we would call an enjambment, two lines that run together without punctuation. That, combined with the fact that the last line has only three stresses instead of four from the kiss of the vanished sun, gives this last part of the poem a feeling of rushing onward. And that feeling is enhanced by the sounds of these lines, the percussive sounds of cheek, crimsoned, and kiss, which are like uh, little propulsions of energy that push us toward the end. It's amazing that this four-line poem, which again seems fairly simple on the surface, in its structure and its sound, behaves just like the scene it describes. It lingers, and then it pushes onward toward an end that we don't want to come, but that has to. I thought of this poem recently when I was on a camping trip with my wife and my kids. My son was celebrating his birthday, and he got a skateboard, and he was so happy to be able to ride around on his skateboard near the campsite as the sun was beginning to set. And you know how it is when you're a kid. You will linger as long as possible until there's barely enough light to do what you're doing. And then finally, you have to come in. You have to return to the campsite. You have to admit that the sun has finally vanished. And that's just the feeling that this poem evokes for me. Afterglow by Thomas Walsh Over the orchard, one great star, The mellow moon and the harvest done, And the cheek of the river crimsoned Far from the kiss of the vanished sun. And now, here's a musical setting of Afterglow by the American composer Mary Turner Salter. This is the first ever recording of this song, which I commissioned for my website, Art Song Augmented. The performers are my brilliant University of Oregon colleagues, soprano Camille Ortiz and pianist Gustavo Castro. 
and the recording engineer is Joseph Wenda. My guess is that you've never heard of the composer Mary Turner Salter. Her name is not one that that appears in history books about song from this time period, the early 20th century. There is no book written about her. There are not analyses of her songs. She doesn't appear in classes that, that cover this repertoire. But she is one of many, many composers, especially women composers, who were active in the production of so-called parlor music in the late 19th and early 20th century in America. Parlor music has a bad reputation. When we think of parlor music, we think of music that would be performed in living rooms, in domestic spaces, and that was often written for amateur performers. So we're thinking of things that are kind of lighthearted, easy to play, easy to listen to, not particularly quote-unquote serious. But the songs of Mary Turner Salter give the lie to this idea that parlor music is just simplistic music. And she's not the only composer of parlor music about which this could be said. She wrote over 200 songs that were published in her lifetime, and they are rich, affecting, subtle, beautifully crafted, and yes, also accessible. And the fact that they are able to be both affecting and accessible is a sign of her brilliance as a composer. Mary Turner Salter was born in 1856 in the Midwest. She was born in Peoria, Illinois, and went to high school in Burlington, Iowa, just across the Mississippi River. And I mention that in part because that's about 60 miles from my hometown of Bettendorf, Iowa. So I feel a special kinship with this woman who grew up very near where I grew up. Then she moved to the East Coast, as I did, incidentally, when I went to graduate school. She was a student at the New England Conservatory in Boston, and she made a name for herself as a mezzo-soprano who performed in the New York City and Boston area, and then got a job teaching voice at Wellesley College, where she taught between 1879 and 1881. Interestingly, she didn't start composing until after she got married. She married an organist and music director at Williams College, whose name was Sumner Salter, and he encouraged her in her compositional efforts. And they had, by all accounts, a wonderful marriage making music together. She wrote in a, an interview in 1919 that Mr. Salter, she called him, had been the inspiration for her best songs. She wanted to say, we sang in the church choir together before we were married. My first song was dedicated to him, 
although he would not let me write his whole name on it, but only the initials 2SS. No one ever had such a good time doing things as I do. It is such fun. So you can sense in those words the exuberance that she felt in this musical partnership. This particular song by Salter was written in 1908, and one thing that strikes me about it is that the opening of the song has the same kind of outward simplicity that I hear in Walsh's poem. Here's the beginning, just the piano introduction, and listen for the gentle lilt, the kind of sweetness, even naivete of the opening. This is a bit fanciful, but when I listen to just the opening of the song, it sounds to me like it could be the beginning of a, of a Christmas song that might be sung by children. Salter might have continued in this sweet, gentle, lilting fashion if, for example, she had set the opening two lines of the poem with a rhythm that's more like this. And what I'm going to do here is sing the opening two lines and change the rhythm so that it's much more conventional and so that each measure of the music has two poetic stresses in it. I'm also going to change the piano part a little so that it has less chromaticism. Over the orchard, one great star, the mellow moon and the harvest dawn. But that's not what she does. Notice that when the vocal melody comes in, there's a pause between the words orchard and one, and the word star is stretched out over two measures. I hear that short pause as the moment when the speaker of the poem catches her breath, when she sees the star up in the heavens, and then you can feel her looking up to it as the melody climbs upward and sustains that single crucial word, star. So this is no simple parlor melody. This is a tune that enacts the feeling and the motion of looking at the star in the sky. And the next phrase captures the gradual darkening of the sky with chromatic notes, specifically with notes that are lower than we expect them to be, like the notes on mellow and harvest. If the lights were slightly dimmed in the passage you just heard, they grow even dimmer in the last part of the song, the setting of the last two lines, and the cheek of the river crimsoned far from the kiss of the vanished sun. There's so much to say about Salter's setting of these lines. I'll just point out a few things. Listen for how the melody climbs upward to a high note, as it did before, but the piano stops its motion. What you'll hear is the same lilting rhythm from the beginning of the song, then a 16th note arpeggio moving upward, and then a sustained dotted half note. Then Salter repeats that gesture, voice sustaining a high note, piano with arpeggios leading upward to a sustained chord, and then repeats it again. You'll hear three high Fs sung exquisitely by Camille Ortiz. The first forte, the second quieter, piano dynamic, and the third quieter still, a double piano dynamic. 
each high note held above wonderfully flat side chords in the key of D major. An F7, a D flat chord, and a B flat chord. This is an image, a musical representation of looking into the far distance and wishing that the moment would last forever, wishing that time would stop. Recall that in Thomas Walsh's poem, this is when the poem moves ahead, when we have an enjambment between two lines and the cheek of the river crimson far from the kiss of the vanished sun, when we have three stresses in the final line rather than four, when we have those percussive consonants that push us forward. In Mary Turner Salter's song, what she's really doing is counteracting that forward motion in the poem. She's refusing to observe that enjambment musically. She's refusing to emphasize the three stresses of that final line. And in fact, she gives us four stresses because she repeats a word. We hear not from the kiss of the vanished sun, but from the kiss, the kiss of the vanished sun. This makes the very ending of the song all the more bittersweet that moment when we arrive on a D major chord happens to be the only D major chord, the only tonic chord in the song, after those dissonances beneath the word vanished. I've come to think of that moment of resolution as being akin to the moment when, when the sun finally disappears beneath the horizon, which seems to take forever to happen, but then happens in a single moment. That moment in Mary Turner Salter's song is all the more affecting because she's held it at bay for so long, or tried to. The music has lingered as long as possible until it can linger no longer, and night finally comes. And here, once more, is Mary Turner Salter's Afterglow. Heartfelt thanks to 
Camille Ortiz, Gustavo Castro, and Joseph Wenda for their beautiful work on this song that had never been previously recorded. If you'd like to find out more about Mary Turner Salter's songs and hear three more songs performed by Camille Ortiz and Gustavo Castro, please visit artsongaugmented.org. To listen and subscribe to the podcast, go to resoundingverse.buzzsprout.com. Resounding Verse is produced by me, Steve Rogers. Thank you for listening.